Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Welcome to, to all of you. I'm Warren Kinghorn, for anybody that haven't met. Uh, I'm one of the co-directors of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. Uh, Far Curlin will be here in a few minutes. He's um, the other co-director. Um, we're grateful, as always, for the Trent Center for hosting us in this space and for providing lunch and for making it possible for us to meet here. Uh, I think we have a sign-up sheet. If any of you, if, if any of you this is your first time here, um, make sure we have your contact information so you can be on the list uh, going forward. Uh, I think most of not all of you have been here in, in other weeks. Uh, so for this last uh, seminar of the fall semester, it's really my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Walter Lee who is here as our, uh, as our presenter, and, and uh, Dr. Lee is Associate Professor of Surgery and of Radiation Oncology here at Duke. He is a uh, uh, ear, nose, and throat uh, specialist with, uh, focused on head and neck cancers, is that, is yep, that right? exactly. Um, finished, it, did his MD at George Washington University and finished that in 2009, did his uh, residency training at Cleveland Clinic. Oh, 1999. Um, 1999, sorry. I look younger than I am. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, yeah. sorry I got that wrong. And then did residency training at Cleveland Clinic, and then uh, did also a Master of Health Sciences here at Duke in the context of his, I guess, fellowship training, is that right? Yeah. Um, Dr. Lee has done a lot of basic research, as it has uh, dozens at least of scientific publications. Also has done some really interesting work around medical education in the uh, ENT residency program and uh, in the surgery department, and he might tell us some about that today. We're really uh, delighted that he's here to present for us on Code Blue, Fighting to Save the Moral Life of Medical Trainees. So, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Warren, and thank you so much for this invitation. I, I have been looking forward to this because it's pretty rare that I can pull together all these interests that I have in a, in a talk like this. It's usually about science, it's usually about something else, or head and neck surgery, and um, so this is a very um, exciting opportunity for me. I also understand we have a very diverse group of people from the Divinity School, School of Medicine, other types of um, experiences. So I'm, I've set up my uh, time with you um, pretty much like this. I'm going to, for the first half, throw out some sticky notes, if you could, if you could put it that way, and just ideas um, or thoughts that I had. And and if I'm moving fast, it's on purpose because I just want to throw those out there. And if you want to. Uh, then revisit those. That's what the second half is going to be. So we can go wherever you want to go. Um, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to really picking your brains a little bit about some of the work we've been doing. I've got some exciting new data. I just got a couple days ago, so I'm going to throw that out there too and just kind of get your thoughts and um, observations and, and perspective. So let's just start off. So here's a question. If you're going to choose somebody for your residency or medical school, like what kind of things do you look for? You can just throw it out there. Humanism. Humanism? And what? Oh, I'm like, what, what, <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> no, that's funny, because that's the word. That's, that would be the answer for many people. I'm on the executive committee. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What does it mean? <clears throat> it is, um, I think it is a placeholder for the moral qualities that are sought in a medical student. I think if you really push people, you might start to find some variation, but probably broadly defined, it would include compassion and caring um, and uh, 
I would say respect for patient autonomy is, would be pretty explicitly part of that package too. Awesome. Other thoughts? I'm sure you've just thrown out there. Yell them out. Board scores. Board scores, okay, good. <clears throat> Grit. 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 Anything else? Integrity. Integrity, okay. More. Yeah, like so far we have four things. That's a pretty short list. <laughs> Anything? Team. Team player. Team player, good. This falls under humanism, but are they nice to people that don't, quote unquote, don't matter? Okay, maybe some um, um, inclusiveness um, of those that may be on the fringes or something like yeah, that? Or like med students are on this trajectory to succeed, and yeah. they're always looking at people ahead of them yes. for favors. Uh -huh. So do they look to people who aren't able to give them favors and care well for those folks? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> So we can, of course, spend a lot of time thinking about this, and you know we. Can I just add two yeah. things? I mean, diversity has to be said pretty explicitly. Um, diversity. Right? Okay. And, and, and the Duke committee, we really look hard at distance travel. It's very interesting. Look at somebody's background. What did they overcome to get there? Okay. Thinking that there's a lot of people who, you know, there's obviously some people who have been given tremendous advantages all along and have these amazing resumes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and the committee really looks very hard at what people overcome. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Kind of where you started and where you've. How far you come? Account. Some people have, to, they have a job, and they can't do 200 hours of non-paid volunteer work here. There. Yeah. Well, a lot of, um, pretty much everything you guys have said is stuff that we also look at, particularly in our residency. Just to give you an idea of our, um, for otolaryngology, we usually get about 400 applications. Uh, we, read, we read through them, and we select about 30 or 40 of those to come for an interview. And then of those, we match three. So we really want to make sure we don't waste any of the spots on things that um, uh, we think are important and may not be there. But it's, it's as, uh, for those of you who have been in this situation, it's very difficult. It's challenging. And so I agree with all, all that. And things that like character, grit, um, compassion, I would argue that these are things that we look for. But after you kind of get in, those things are assumed and then you move along and you don't you focus more on learning and boards and other things. So one thought that just really struck us is well if these are so important what are we doing to grow them right because it's not a it's not a you have it or you don't I would say that you have it and you can develop it. So this is a uh, quote <coughs> um, from the former philosophy chair at George Washington my undergraduate, I was a philosophy major with a focus on ethics, so you can see kind of where we're going with this. Um, and uh, I got into medical school, and this was the you know, graduation time, and I was going to start medical school in the fall. And he pulls me aside at our party, our departmental party. He goes, hey, Walter, you've done a really great job. We're all very proud of you, blah, blah, blah. He goes, hey, just remember, uh, Walter, um, beware of the deformation of the professional. And at that time, I didn't know what he was talking about. Like, Dr. Rivera, I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And he goes on to explain, you know, this is the process for which people go into, let's say, medical school, um, and they're a certain type of person. And through the process of becoming a uh, physician, you've ended up in a place that you did not want to end up, or you've the deformation of the professional. So think about all those qualities we've just talked about on that other sticky note. 
And uh, we're choosing these people um, according to those qualities. And then something happens along the way uh, that they either lose it or they get um, atrophied or whatever you want to say. I think all of us are aware in medical education that during the clinical years, that kind of compassion that students have get less. Empathy gets less. There's something that's happening. Uh, and then what does that mean? Um, so I really, and Dr. Dr. Professor Griffith actually died a few years ago, but I, I've always been very grateful for him because just that one kind of five-minute conversation has really helped me through my whole process. And that's probably because I was aware of a danger or pitfall, whereas if he had never said anything, this process would have been going on and I couldn't name it, I couldn't recognize it. But when I've gone through these things, I'm like, oh, this is what the Professor Griffith was telling me about you know, three years ago, four years ago. Um, I want to say, since we're talking about theology, uh, medicine, and culture, um, just from briefly about my own faith journey, um, I became a Christian in uh, college. Uh, but I made a decision to go into medicine before that. So I have very clear recollections of how my uh, thought process changed before and after I became a Christian. For those of you who um, have that kind of journey, you may remember just that everything changes. And so I, I, um, I'm kind of coming at it from a lens, of course, of being a Christian, but I clearly remember what what I was doing and thinking before I was a Christian, and that will come up uh, a little bit later. Uh, another sticky note I'll throw out there is, you know, we all know that there are major issues in uh, the profession of medicine. So I just throw up a couple. There's tons of talk about burnout, resilience, and ultimately suicide. Uh, those in medicine have at the highest rate uh, highest odds ratio of committing suicide of all the professions. I think lawyers are second, and then there's dentists are on that list, and et cetera, it goes on. Um, <clears throat> but burnout and resilience, somebody mentioned grit. Somebody mentioned kind of like what you've had to overcome. So these are things that we're looking for. And I've had to, had to ask myself, uh, what, you know, this isn't anything new. Uh, medicine's always been kind of difficult. It's never been easy. And I think about my father, who was a general surgeon, and complaining to him one day that I was on vascular surgery, this was when I was an intern, and how tired I was because I was taking call every other night. And I had to do that for a month. He's like, oh my gosh, yeah, I know, I know how you must feel. Um, I had to do every other night call for two years. And then I thought to myself, never <laughs> complain to my dad, ever, <laughs> ever. But you know, my point is that Things were tough. It's not like our generation has it any more tough or like the next generation. So something is, something is amiss that I don't quite understand. In fact, I would argue in some ways they had it tougher. I'm not arguing that we go back to the days where physicians worked over 100 hours a week. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that maybe there's something else going on that we're not touching or addressing uh, and trying to. Um, and if you don't address the right thing, you're not going to fix it correctly. So right now, um, we have limits on the 80-hour, we have a limit on the 80-hour work week. So residents have to leave, um, leave if they're exceeding that, and, and we can get into a big trouble if we don't comply by those rules. And what kind of message is that doing to our trainees as they're coming up into this new you know, profession? 
The other thing I'll mention is this loss of autonomy, expertise, purpose, and meaning. So there's a lot of data that shows resilience and uh, burnout is related to the loss of these things. I'll just give you a quick example from this past week. So loss of autonomy. So I spent probably close to 30 minutes this past week on the phone with insurance company trying to get this PET scan approved for this cancer patient that I know exactly this is what they need. So the process was I get an email, this has been rejected, you need to call this person. So I call this person and then they put me on hold and they say, okay, we're going to schedule a time that you need to talk to the doctor. So then I schedule that time, I call the person, I have to wait. They get on the phone, they're reviewing the chart, tell me why you didn't, and then oh, they're like, oh, yeah, approved. I'm like, okay, thanks. I hang up and I think, wow, what happened to my 30 minutes of that whole process? They're really frustrating to me because, you know, autonomy is gone. Expertise. Um, there's also a lot of data out there about how much time doctors spend interacting with the patient versus interacting with the electronic medical chart. Add on that the extra hours of documentation that they do outside of work. And honestly, I think all of us are going to suffer. Whoever fixes this um, disease that you get for doing this all the time, um, whatever, yeah, carpal tunnel, whatever, they're going to be making like tons of money on all the doctors that are like clicking every day, you know, thousands of times a day. But uh, to be serious, the frustration that I have with the medical record, it's great in many ways, but other ways, like I know what I need to do, I just don't know how to do it, and I'm trying to figure out the right order. Oh my gosh, there's like three orders for the PET scan, which one do I choose? That's not what I spent you know, over a decade learning and doing. And so I feel out of, out of place for the expertise that I've been trained to do, I can't do. This other expertise is like nebulous, and I'm trying to learn on the fly to care, care of patients. So it's very frustrating for us. Finally, loss of purpose and meaning. I mean, clearly, um, suicide, I'll just tie it back into suicide, has a lot of reasons. I'm not trying to simplify it or um, um, diminish the, the pain that happens. But I would say that one major driving force to suicide is that you've lost purpose and meaning in living. Um, and, and what does that mean? And we have, as I mentioned, a lot of doctors who are at that point, and what's, what's happening? Um, so, in 2010, um, our residency had a crisis, and that crisis was that two of our residents, out of the, at that time, it was two a year, so it was uh, ten, two of our residents, um, were, uh, over a span of like eight months, um, were found to do like crazy stuff. So, one person um, plagiarized their entire grand rounds. So they're giving grand rounds. And literally, like, this person is not that strong or working with them, but that grand rounds was excellent. Like, and my colleague turns to me and goes, wow, I can't believe this person. This is, like, really good. And I made this comment half-joking. I'm like, yeah, it's almost like they, like, copied it from somewhere. Well, my colleague literally starts to get on the Internet and finds the grand rounds that they are doing. And it's literally word for word. She's just basically reading it. Well, that had to be addressed. Another, pay, uh, another, uh, wasn't a TED talk. Uh, well, no, <laughs> wasn't a TED talk. No, one of our programs in the country posts their grand rounds. Um, and that was where it came from. Another uh, resident actually was, um, found moonlighting when it's explicitly against the rules to moonlight. So moonlighting, for those who may not know, is you have resident, you have a job in residency. 
And moonlighting is you go after hours and you go work at a urgent care, you go work at an ER to make extra money, and you can get paid pretty well, but we need, you know, you to get your rest and to study and not to be doing two jobs. Well, that person had been doing that for quite a while. And what I think hurts me the most is that um, we knew something was wrong. I actually thought the person was on drugs because they weren't showing up on time, notes weren't being done. I mean, it was really concerning. And all the other residents knew this. And, and um, you know, what are we doing as attendings in this program if this is an egregious violation? Other residents had a cover. I mean, it's a mess. So that, in 2010, made us, as a faculty, um, kind of just full stop. And these are supposed to be best and brightest. We've spent all this time choosing these people. And this is what's going on. So we, so at the time, my chair, Ray Esclamato, um, called a big, like, emergency meeting at the WASHTU. We all met at the WASHTU. And we basically said, what are we doing? Because if, 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 yes, we're supposed to be teaching surgery, but we're missing something major. And, you know, frankly, we don't care if they can pass the boards. If this is the kind of people that's, that's coming out of here, we, we got big problems. So from that um, kind of start, this started the journey of where I'm going to be talking the rest of the talk about. It's interesting because we left that meeting and we said, you know, okay, we're going to define what we expect of our residents as well as ourselves. And at that time we said, okay, if they have integrity, if they have initiative, if they have self-discipline, responsibility, and accountability. There's a lot of other things we can talk about, but if you have those five, we're going to be good. And so that's what came out of that. Well, the next faculty meeting, and I was excited. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. This is really great. So the next faculty meeting, um, you know, we go through the faculty meeting as we usually do, and, and there's nothing on there about anything except that, okay, now we're, we're going we're gonna to make this as an explicit part. And I raised my hand. I said, listen, this is great that we've identified these kind of core uh, um, characteristics or virtues, but, but you think that these folks are just going to know it just by hanging out with us for five years? And you know, we got to be explicit about this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I happen to do a lot of work in this in undergrad, so I'm happy to kind of lead the charge. And that's where that happened. Out of that work, I worked with some um, consultants, you could say. I found some consultants, which is a time, another story for another day. But we developed this professionalism intelligence model because you have to know a framework, or you have to have some framework. You can't just be doing stuff without kind of a framework. And so this is the framework that we came up with. I'm going to just walk you through this. There's a lot of text on this, but just, just stay with me. So this framework is illustrated here. You've got the cognitive intelligence, which you can think of as a skill set like problem solving, et cetera. You've got the emotional intelligence, which I think all of us are aware of, and they include skills like self-awareness. And then you have the leadership intelligence down here, which um, are all skills that effective leaders have, okay, embodiment, recognition. So that's the model. There's a couple things that I need to point out that are very important about this model. First, so you can think of it as what you know, what you feel, and what you do, okay? So um, two things. Well, a couple things. First is, this model has to be balanced. Has to be balanced. So what I mean by that is, you could be the person who scores the highest on the MCAT in the country, but if you can't talk to people, emotional intelligence, 
Okay? And you can't lead a team, like you're, in our book, you're failing. That's only 30% of what we look for. Got it? So it has to be balanced. <coughs> the other thing is, it's a growing, this is a living model. It's a living model. So what I expect from medical students, it's very different than what I expect from my chief resident and what I expect from attendings, right? How they lead, how they manage their own emotions. So it's a living model, it's growing, and part of our job in medical education, I argue, is we have to help you grow in this area and balance. All of us, though, are lacking in what I just said. All of us are not balanced. We probably have some areas that we depend on more. Maybe some people are just naturally very compassionate. That's fine, they're very strong and emotional intelligence, great. Maybe you don't need to work on that but maybe you need to work on how do you lead a team and communicate. No, so you get the idea. But over time, if I ask you a question as a chief resident and you don't know the answer, I may be very upset at you versus if I ask you a question as an intern and you didn't know the answer because that's cognitive intelligence at that time, I expect different things. Okay. Everybody with me so far? Very simple. And this is what I love about it because it's very simple. Like I, We're not creating anything new. It's like almost intuitive. <coughs> Final thing I'll draw your attention to is virtues. That's at the core. So I'll ask you, I'll ask anybody, uh, any, anybody a question. If you didn't have virtues in the core, this is gone, and you had everything else, what kind of person could you potentially have? Sociopath. Sociopath, exactly. Narcissist, sociopath. Right? Because all of us, if you're in medicine long enough, know people who are super smart, know people who can manage their emotions and manipulate other people's emotions, and for some reason, I have no idea why. They're usually in leadership positions, and it's just always a mystery to me. But they don't have that. So that is, has to anchor the whole thing. And I know, this, I know it resonates with you all, because when I asked you, what are you looking for, you kind of started talking about virtues. Now, I'll ask you a different question. What is the difference between virtues and values? Anybody? Throw it out. What you believe versus what you practice. So, val so values is what you practice? <clears throat> no, values is what you intellectually believe. Virtues is what you practice. Gotcha. Got it? So. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yeah, Virtue is more like a disposition of the soul or kind of a, a habit towards something maybe that you would just kind of do naturally mm -hmm. more than just something you value intellectually but maybe don't, like you were saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any, any others? Well, both of them will vary based on cultural context. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, you guys are all, um, uh, yeah, touching upon this thing. And, but if you walk around Duke, do you see banners that say, these are our virtues? No, you see these, these are our values. And, and that's fine. I think we understand. I would argue that virtues, um, you can value virtues, okay? Um, you can value compassion. But you don't have to value virtues. You can value money. You could value fancy cars. So there is a distinction there, um, and I, don't, I want to move on, but that's why we specifically put virtues. And I think that by using that word, you can tap into the vast you know, uh, traditions of so many things, philosophy, religion, psychology, because just by using that word, if you go values, then it's kind of suck. Okay, so I'll stop there. So that, that is Walter, what we've got. Yep. Before you move on from yeah. that, just, um, the problem is this person will never be in charge of Duke Medical Center because of money. It takes money to run the medical center. 
and it's money isn't reflected, business and money isn't reflected. Yeah. And so the problem is these people report to someone else forever, unless somehow yeah. you bring the money and the business side into this. Yeah, yeah. It is a challenge. I, I am a little bit more optimistic. I think it is hard. I think people just kind of weed out. But I am optimistic that somewhere miracles can happen. <laughs> and well, and, I mean, and you could potentially have somebody who says, you know what, this is what we're trying to just do. just think about, like, the it's a company that runs on money. So if you can put somebody in charge and you have a person like this and a person a little bit less emotionally yeah. intelligent, yeah. maybe just as smart, but is really good with money, and money's the main thing you're dealing with. Yeah. It just somehow, it just seems like it, it's got to fit here somewhere. Yes, yes. And, and so we wrote, um, so I'm going to throw this out there uh, just to try to um, resolve that challenge because... Uh, so uh, we wrote a um, piece about surgery, uh, about um, surgical innovation industry, and what do you do about that conflicts of interest? And I made the point that look, in in business, money is the goal, right? That that, that is that's how you decide your ethics. Business ethics is is that going to make money or not? Uh, and by the way, people in business wouldn't agree. With it, uh, but uh, at the a, end of the day. Um, a successful fan or a customer. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So, so I think I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm yeah, getting there. Okay. So in medicine, though, um, what is kind of what rules the rules? I think doing the best that you can for the patient. That's what drives it. Now, I think you and I both understand. How can you do best for the patient when the hospital is going out of business? Or if they can't afford to pay for what? You're or, doing yeah, exactly. Pay. So money has right. to be part of that equation. So it's not. And and same with business. How can you make money when you're hurting people? I mean, it's, it's very. It's, it's got to be... Uh, so I'm saying oh. somehow you, it's yes. got to fit into this. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that these people do run the medical center. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, let me um, uh, move here. So let's just think a little bit about fostering virtues in clinical care. So what, 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 what would that might look like? Especially in an environment where there's post-truth relativism. And, you know, anybody can post what their opinion is about a restaurant, like, you know, Yelp culture, this is what I think about. It's, it, it is everywhere. And it's a very much focused on, this is what I think. This is what I believe. But in medicine, uh, how strange is it if I say in surgery, hey, uh, you know, Joe, who's um, a chief resident, um, what do you think this nerve is here? And they're like, well, I think it's the whatever. I mean, does that fly? I'm going to be like, oh, okay, is that what you think? Okay, well, that's good. No, I mean, we're, we're, it is either the facial nerve or it's not. And you're going to make decisions on what that happens. Uh, just within the last couple weeks, I was horrified when I'm talking to the resident after seeing a patient for cancer, and I'm like, okay, what do you think we need to do here? We're, 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 we're going to do for this patient. And they're, they said, well, I think we need to do this. But the thing was, what they thought was totally like, I don't know where they got that from. Like, it, it wasn't even a range of possibilities. And I'm like, what? Well, where did you think that? Like, how did you come up with that? They're like, um, I don't know. That's just what I thought. And I'm just like, you realize we're trying to make a decision here for this patient? We don't really care what you think. Like, look up some guidelines, do something. Like, it's just, it was just, like, shocking to me. And we're not here, like, talking about opinions. So did you, did you go old school surgeon on it? I, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I, I went. I, I, okay, yeah. So this was in the break room. This was in the break room. There were other people around. So usually, what I do is like this. <sighs> and then, and then we do something. 
So, so virtues, though, I think helps us think about that. Because I think one aspect of virtues is that it's transcendent. It's not like what I think. And, and I, nobody has like the 100% understanding of that, but it's some transcendent outside thing that we're all trying to move towards. And we can have legitimate conversations about what do you think this might look like, honesty, and what I think of that. But, but we all know that it's not just you and I talking about opinions and that's all there is. There's some, something transcendent. So bringing virtues into like education, uh, medical uh, uh, care, I think helps us. Like, look, it's, we can legitimately disagree knowing that there's something that's absolutely out there right that we can do. We can, we're trying to get closer to that. Um, fostering virtues and culture. So if you have a bunch of people um, trying to build this culture, what, what would that look like? I, I throw this up here, work-life balance. Um, I always, this always troubles me a little bit because, and you may not be this way, but when you think work-life balance, I always think of work-life on a little teeter-totter thing, trying to balance it out. And it, it, it's problematic um, on a variety of, of things. But I would say that Part of the problem that we may be seeing that people are frustrated, they're burnt out, is because it can't be separated. It can't be balanced. It actually is very much integrated. I mean, life, I would I say life is life, right? And um, I, I'll give you this as an example. This is a leadership lived out program that we instituted in our division. And this program uh, uses the framework that I showed you. And it includes not just doctors. It includes residents. It includes um, people who work in the front desk, anybody who comes in contact with the patient, secretaries, because we're all in this. I, I, we argue this. We are the culture, so we all should be thinking about how we're going to put this together. And a couple comments. We've run this now for five years. It's a basically a cohort of 10 people. And some couple comments have come up that I found very interesting. This was instituted at work, but they say something like, the things that I learned about myself and this has helped me not only at work, but also at home. It's made my relationship with my wife better. And that was not our goal, but, I'm, but at some point I'm like, you know, that is what we're trying to do. Like, we're not, these can't be separated. They must be integrated, because the person who's happy at home is going to be happy at work. I mean, well, more happy than somebody who's not. So, throw that out there. Fostering virtues in education. Um, when I think of education, I think of professional identity formation. That shouldn't be a surprise, since I told you that that model was a living model, so it's a form forming uh, of this. But here's the thing: if we don't, if we don't talk, we, we talk about things that are important to us. And so, if, if compassion and resilience and um, integrity are important to us, then why aren't we talking about them? Or, or maybe we talk about them in passing, like everybody's got it, and we go on. But I'm always surprised how when I say, okay, you, you mentioned integrity. Can you tell me what integrity means to you? And there's a lot of sometimes blubbering. There's like, oh, you know, it's like this. Yeah, yeah. So we, we teach our residents, like, this is what it, this is when I say integrity, this is kind of the context for which we're talking about it. But here's the thing um, that we've been able to do with the medical students now. So the last uh, couple of years, they have this course called the, it used to be called the practice course, now it's called Clinical Skills Foundation. It's a longitudinal course that teaches you how to, it's the course that you interact with standardized patients, you kind of develop your empathy, compassion, things like that. And so the directors um, a couple years ago really liked our model and said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. We're going to adopt that model. But in the model, as I listed virtues, 
And there are a ton, there's you know, a lot of virtues. So we use the method called QSort. Um, so for those who don't understand QSort, QSort is a validated way to take qualitative opinions and measure them in a quantitative way. So what I mean by that is, uh, and this will become a little bit more clear, is if I were to ask all of you to, hey, list in order your uh, top virtues that you would want in a doctor, then all you guys would do that, and everybody's list would be a little bit different. Well, QSort is a way to do it so that I can analyze it and actually spit out p-values and be like, hey, compassion is significantly higher than, you know, it's really a neat thing. So we did that for the, we've been doing that for the medical students. First year, second year, and fourth year. So we're about the fourth or fifth cycle into it, and we've got some interesting things that I want to show you. But this is an example of what you would have. So this is the class of 2021. After doing the QSort, their class identified these five virtues. Excellence, integrity, perseverance, compassion, critical thinking. Now, one thing I should mention if you're not familiar with QSort, QSort is not a popularity contest. It's not like all of you guys vote, okay, what's number one? Oh, compassion got the top of No, QSort uh, preserves voices within the group. So let's say that you six over here really felt like integrity was like super, super high. But the rest of you felt like compassion was super high. That is preserved. It's not like your vote is drowned out, okay? And there's a lot of math and statistical stuff that goes along with it. But this is what we're doing. So we're trying to tie this into now um, those sessions that um, are happening. So um, if we have a session on delivering bad news, you know, I try to, as, a, as one of their group leaders, how does that go back into compassion? How do you do it in a compassionate way? How do you do it in a way that's critically thinking through the issues? You know, so that's, we're, we're just trying to get it into the vocabulary, just having them up, you know, think about it. Okay, so because I have a special uh, opportunity to speak to you guys in this theology, medicine, and culture uh, arena, um, let's talk a little bit about spirituality and faith. So if I, this is data that I just got a couple days ago. Imagine the class doing, this is the class, forget which class of 2000, this is from 2016. Okay, so 2016 first year medical students. This is what um, got kicked out in terms of the QSort. This is just one step of the QSort. Don't worry about the numbers. I'm going to walk you through this so that you can understand it very quickly. This is listed in order of how they ranked them, not the QSort, just how they ranked everybody. So at the very top is compassion. I'll just sit down, I'm afraid. Compassion, and they have a score of three. Now, it goes from negative five to five. And think of an inverted pyramid. Okay, so over here on five, you have one space. So we say, what is your top choice? Four, you actually have like three spaces. What, is, what are the three things? And it goes all the way down, and then until you go to negative five, where you have only one spot left, you say, what is your least important virtue you think is important for clinical care? So the question is, what virtues do you think are most or least important for vertical care? This doesn't mean they're not important, it just means in order. It's the very top, uh, but the mean score of three is compassion. The highlighted things I did for you so that you can see percentages of 15% or above. Okay, so you kind of get a sense of, yes, they are in order because the yellow goes like this. What's at the very bottom? Spirituality and faith. Which, okay, but 
what it was shocking to me was that that percentage of negative five, which means that you have one spot, what's the least? 53% of the class put it as negative five, which blows, there's no other thing on here that is that high. The, the closest is probably 29%, hope optimism maybe. So there is something significant that's going on that within the class that they would say, okay, I understand that all these are important and, and put them down there. Now, let's, so then that begged the question. I said, well, what if we pulled out just the people who ranked spirituality and faith the highest? Are there such people? And apparently there is. There's seven people, seven people <laughs> that ranked it um, three, four, five, three, four, five. So 43% of them, which I, I'm not good at math, but let's say three people ranked it as number five. So you can see the yellow. When you compare the yellow, all you're comparing is like generally where they rank. And here, compassion is pretty important. You can see generally, this is again above 15%. And the mean scores, I kept the order the same so that you can compare yellow. But highest, lowest by 53%, and then the rest kind of fall in there. So I'm thinking, well, what implications does this have? Oh, we also asked them in the QSort, give us reasons why you would rank this number one, or num you know, five, or negative five. And that stuff is gold. And I meant to print it out, and I forgot, because I was in the OR this morning. But that stuff is gold, because you have their own words saying stuff like, you know, all these things are very important, but for me, my faith anchors everything I do. Or things like, um, I've gone through troubling times and, you know, this, the faith was all I had left and this is um, very powerful statements. That's from the seven people. If you look at the rest of the 117 people, some of them don't say anything, but some of them, one person said God is dead. Another person said, look, you know, faith is important, but it's really individualized. Everybody kind of do their own thing, but in medicine, faith has no place. I mean, we, it's really fascinating to kind of see the thought process. So my argument, okay, we've kind of gone through that already. My argument is, okay, here's another way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, top, just look at the order. Don't worry so much about the number. The number is just the mean. But you can see that there's some overlap, and then there's also some uh, significant differences, uh, basically, in spirituality and faith. So... Um, I think I'm going to end with this concluding thought, and I'd love to get um, some discussion going. So, anybody know the name of this building right here? Oh, okay, how about this one? Taipei 101. How many floors does that have? 101, gosh. Wow. Excellent, yes. So this is the picture of the highest buildings in the world. And I've been to the Sears Tower, which is now, um, I think they're changing the name because somebody, they had a renaming contest. Uh, it was, it's now the Willis Tower, but they had a renaming contest and said, whoever buys the most floors gets to rename it. And um, the Blackstone Company, I think it's called Blackstone Company, got naming rights. How many floors did they get? They got two out of all of them. <laughs> um, this is the Twin Towers. I've actually, I was there last year, Taipei 101, which uh, of course is from my own homeland of Taiwan. 
and then the Burj Khalifa. But if you look at this, what always struck me as interesting was all the other buildings are generally about the same height, and then the Burj Khalifa just uh, just dominates. It's like over 2,000 feet, it's like 800 meters. I mean, like what, what on earth happened? And basically, as I try to uh, understand that, well, great advances in foundational and structural cores allowed it to go that high. And I think that's true, right? And my, 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 my thing is this, I'll leave you with this final thought. Like, the quality of the core and foundation determines the heights that one can achieve. And if we aren't, as educators, thinking about what am I doing to foster and preserve and develop that core, virtuous core, and for many of us, I would say that that virtue comes from our faith. You know, what, what are we ultimately doing? And what are the consequences of not doing that? And what cracks do you start seeing? What kind of things do you start seeing if that isn't happening? So all the things that we've been doing with our residency program, the medical students, um, leadership lift out, all this stuff, I'm not advocating that every doctor needs to be a Christian. I am advocating, though, that you have to ask the question for yourself. Where, where, where is your core? What is your foundation? Because if you don't, and you go along this road, it's gonna, there's, it's gonna, the problems are going to come up. So let me stop there. I think I went over the time that I wanted, but I'd love to get some discussion going. Thank you very much. So our tradition is to go until 1.15. Uh, we'll end then. Some of you I know may have to leave before that, which is, uh, which is fine. Uh, but we have plenty of time for conversation now. We've got to leave. So yeah. thanks very much. Yeah. Cheers. Jack. Thanks, Walter. Really interesting, and interesting to me as somebody who doesn't think of this through QSORs. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so as I look at that, it's such an interesting project. Um, can't help but think that there are, that students really have learned that certain words are just good words without necessarily thinking that hard about what they mean. Um, I mean, who's going to be against excellence? That's a very obvious one. But even compassion, sort of think about that. That's a word we, we kind of were just all taught. You know, unless you're a Nazi, you're going to say that's a good word. You start to explore more what that means. This compassion of feeling, um, this, this a feeling of sympathy. Is it really something that it is absolutely implies action, sacrificing on behalf of vulnerable people? That so that's a uncertainty within a word. We would all agree with the word, but I can see we could go different directions with that. And actually, when you, I'm sure you thought about this. You know, if we substitute sympathy, say for compassion, um, we might get a little more division because sympathy kind of makes you think of how much can I be thinking about how my patient is feeling as I am cutting them open. Or, you know, mm -hmm. you know there's a long bit of tension that's in between, say, how much sympathy versus empathy and how much uh, detachment is there. These are sort of complex issues when you start to probe them. But if you just kind of put the word out there, it just sounds like, sure, I, I'd be for that. And, and maybe you'd also, mm -hmm. uh, we are also conditioned to say that faith is something that is private. And so what does it have to do with this? So, mm -hmm. Can you respond to that? I guess how do you how do you get at what the words mean? Yeah. Yeah. So we address that in our uh, we call it the leadership boot camp. We do it every year. So we say to the residents and whoever else shows up. Okay, 
Compassion, empathy, sympathy, what are the differences? And we may not get it exactly right, and we're not there to like fine-tune it, but just so that we understand that, as you said, compassion implies action, which separates it a little bit from sympathy. And then um, one thing that I challenge people also is like, these, this is in a um, dynamic, we're, we're in a dynamic environment. So you're absolutely right. I've got to have a certain level of compassion when I'm talking to the patient in the clinic, which if I had the same compassion when I'm in the OR, things not, not, not I mean, I might not be like, oh my gosh, I can't dirt this person. It, it, it's a different kind of thing that we train ourselves to do mm. and that we have to do to do the things that we have to do. Um, um, and, and it's okay to kind of balance those things out. One thing that I also teach them a lot is about the whole Aristotle golden mean idea too. It's like, you know, you may find yourself going too much on one side. That's okay. You know, we're just trying to find um, that mean that, and, and, and having them understand that, okay, it's a process, and I don't have to be perfect, I just have to be better next time, changes the whole dynamic. Um, so I, don't, I, I probably didn't answer your question except to say that I'm trying to put some safe context within um, how this unfolds and happens, which is different than what's happening now, which is rules, regulations, um, <coughs> milestones, that's it. Kind of ranks in the middle. Um, so I, I kept that off. I understand it was, uh, there's a lot of controversy about that. You mean in terms of definition, or um, should that be considered a virtue? Oh. I've heard some people are very, there's some who are very against that, huh. kind of implying sort of a hmm. condescension. Condescension, yes. Hmm. Um, there was an answer, there was a yeah, spread it, of views. Yes, yeah. yeah. I'm interested, it's kind of in response to that. I'd be interested to see a similar keyword for their personal lives. Like, how does this play out in all the areas that you're claiming to balance with your work? And then comparing and doing the kind of correlation between the two and looking at the variance as an indicator. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you're absolutely right. The question for which they sort is the key. Um, yes, <laughs> we can do that. Um, and we'd be looking for people who are interested in doing it. Uh, yeah, I think you were next. My name is Jacqueline Newport. I'm a nurse, and I'm a current PhD student in the nursing school. And my question for you, uh, so just for some background, uh, when I was trained and throughout my career, uh, we placed a lot of value on and a lot of education on how a patient's culture and religion and their own faith and their own background is going to impact their decision making in the hospital and it's going to impact their care at large. And so my question is this, um, there's this movement that I'm sure you're all aware of for this push for interdisciplinary education where doctors and nurses and pharmacists and social workers all in training are educated together and receive a lot of the same um, knowledge and you know, learn to communicate with each other. So I wonder if you see a value for this, this push for interdisciplinarianism in sort of introducing this more of a holistic paradigm where you start to think about these things um, for medical trainees, because I can guarantee you that if you administer this survey, this QSOR, to nurses, you're going to get some drastically different results than what we've got here. It's again a kind of a 
balance. I'm all for interdisciplinary. I mean, I work in an interdisciplinary field, right? This is a very complex question. No, but, but I, what I sometimes see is it goes too far one way. Well, too far one way in the sense of, like, we're all equal um, in the context that we can't be equal in. So, so let me explain what I mean. If we're sitting around in this table right now, and we're just talking about a patient, say, of course we're all equal. That's what multidisciplinary tumor boards are about. I, I want to know about what speech path thinks. I don't know what um, you know, radiation oncology thinks, um, or the nursing thinks, right? It's all kind of equally considered, equally valid, and equally um, valued in terms of the interaction. But if we're in the operating room, I can't be like, hey, what do you think as anesthesia? What do you think as nursing? What do you think? And, and then that context changes. That's what I mean by sometimes I see too much to, to one way. Um, so trying to sort that out and trying to lead through that to say, like, these are contexts for which, yes, if you see something important, you need to speak up, but there's a way to speak up. There's a, a time to speak up. There's a, you know, kind of trying to show some wisdom and to not just say, I was told to speak up because, you know, we, we're all equal here. It, it, gets, it gets problematic. Um, uh, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, the chart that you showed with the two two sort right? yeah you know one of the things that strikes me is that not, uh, the one where you sh show the comparison uh, oh the, uh, this the one. Next one after this one this one yeah I think it's really interesting when somebody puts faith and integrity over compassion versus compassion is the highest value that that's that's why you have the situation where everyone's covering for somebody doing the wrong thing. Huh. Mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. the problem with compassion is if it's not settled in a set of values, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then it really is just helping everyone do what they want to do, mm -hmm. which is you know everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, which mm -hmm. is what the Bible tells us will lead us down the, the worst possible path. Mm -hmm. And so you just... Think about, you know, if there's not an anchor to compassion, right. and compassion is helping everyone do what, what they want to do. Yeah, and yeah. so then the pro it becomes really problematic. And the reason I say that or saw that is, I mean, I had, I was at Microsoft, and I went from the sort of director and senior director level up into the VP levels. And I did that with teams of people. And as you, you say, what corrupts as the person goes up? What corrupts is that... You then choose. You choose compassion. Um, you know, you choose to kind of do what your boss is telling you to do, or what you think is the right thing for the business. And again, you get confused because you have no, you have no soul, you have no anchor that tells you, "Hey, that may be what they're saying, but it's wrong." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You lose the ability to say right and wrong. Mm -hmm, no, that, that that's that's not the right thing to do. And I watched my Moroccan Muslim boss you know, at the time, really just shift his whole personality as he went up that model. And then as he then got, uh, as things changed, we, we were able to have a lot of dialogues about it. And it, it's just the idea that if you're just trying to do, please everyone, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, eventually it'll go wrong. Fall short. Yeah. That's all right. Thanks for this one. I'm excited about it's like specific curricular innovations. I'd love to talk more about that. I want to follow up on Jackie's really, I thought, really excellent question. Um, to press it further because uh, in order for virtues to be habituated and internalized and become 
core of who you are. They, they have to be a part of practices on the road to certain rooms. And I wonder if, um, I think you need, I, I think it is worth more consideration how the daily practices of different doctors versus different nurses versus different therapists uh, enable or cut off the opportunity for habituating oneself in these particular virtues. And I think that nursing and therapy and other folks have a lot to offer both, but not just around the table, but in the kind of form of life that structurally they're able to practice in ways that might enable these virtues more easily than others. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, I'm acutely aware of the fact that as a surgeon, the number one complaints that medical students have is about surgery. And I'm also acutely aware that when I go to things like this or things that talk about these kind of issues, I'm usually looking around, I'm like, there's no other surgeons around. <laughs> so, <laughs> but also realize that... Be an expensive meeting. <laughs> yeah. I also realize that, though, we as the um, kind of the team lead have failed tremendously in our responsibility to do exactly what you just said. I mean, the egregious things are just awful. And um, so, so one way that we have specifically tried to build this into practices is every evaluation that the resident has, including the attendings, we have this question, how has this person exemplified the five core virtues of X, Y, and Z? There's a space. And then we have another question, it's like, how could this person have better exemplified these five? So the residents do it, or we do it for the residents, residents do it for us. So there becomes a specific feedback on those things, like, hey, when Dr. Lee was yelling at me in front of, like, the, you know, nursing staff in the clinic because I was telling him what I thought, that was, you know, made me feel terrible. That, these are good feedback things. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to, and then they, they, it they see it. It's interesting to have that feedback with, with nurses and other, like, when did they see you being maybe unvirtuous? Yeah. <laughs> or when did they see you being virtuous? Yeah. So unfortunately, um, the system has, I shouldn't say unfortunately, the system has tried through this thing called a peer, um, peer accountability and reporting system. For those of you who are students, you know that you can go on online at any time and report mistreatment, egregious stuff like this. And I'm actually part of this group that then goes and has a cup of coffee with those people that have done wrong. And, and I think that's good, except that I don't, my argument has always been, we don't want to turn into a police state. And half the time I'm going and having a cup of coffee with somebody, I'm like, that was just a big misunderstanding all the way around. Really, it was. I mean, the fact that somebody had to write it down, then said, talk to me, and I go talk to you, it, it, half the time, literally, it's like, we're just people. The other times, yeah, people need to know. So what I've argued is, the cup of coffee is only half the picture. We actually have to have a process of restoration and redemption. So... Secretly, what I've been encouraging when I've had these cup of coffee, coffee, I'm like, so this all happened. It could have been a misunderstanding. Could have been real. Like, what? Do you think there's anything you could do to kind of restore that trust? That you know, the again, that relationship. I'm just kind of leave it there. Yeah. Be
because I think that, and, and oftentimes people understand, they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to so-and-so and let them know I'm sorry. I'm like, that's exactly what we need. We can't, we don't want just reporting. <laughs> but yes, we're, we're trying and stuff. Other questions? I that, um, going off of that, that the um, sort of underlying and this, uh, what you're talking about, falls squarely on this. If you're, if you think you're a good leader and you're not, you're not doing that. I'm saying you're not that good of a leader. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that's where that section we try to build up. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions I had, I think it sort of is connected to um, sort of what Brett raised and you know, the comment before about anchor, is in my own medical education, I've noticed numerous points in which sort of invocations and homage has been paid to sort of virtues, but, but things like we've sort of already mentioned integrity or compassion that end up being sort of hollow placeholders that just generally connote an idea of humanism but don't actually denote anything there's no there's no anchor and I think for Christians like the anchor is ultimately you know the vision of virtuous life that we want to be inculcated into the image of is Jesus Christ what role how I guess how it seems there's, some, there's a certain level of particularity in that that you can't really just sort of detach and then universalize and apply in a medical education setting and, but but in some ways, in the context of a diverse medical center, you know, is that there's not exactly space to sort of, at least in most of the places I've been, stand kind of in a confessional place and say this is like you know, this is the way Jesus would be. So how does a Christian yeah. wanting who has a who are you already have a vision of what the virtuous life is? How do you work with yeah. trainees who may have a different vision of what a virtuous life would be, but still kind of working towards what you believe to be like a true human being? Yeah. You know, I, that so two specific that. examples come to mind, because you're absolutely right. Um, and the two examples came from residents. So we're having a conversation, we're talking about something, something like this, and, then, and I'm just kind of talking about virtues. And I'm like, you know, this is all good. Like, where, where do you think virtues come from? And that was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I'm like, well, you know, because it seems like otherwise it's just like somebody sitting around and just kind of coming up with these good-sounding things. Like, where do you think they come from? And then they're like, oh, maybe society. And we had an interesting conversation. But I was just asking questions, and then what do you think happened next? They're like, Dr. Lee, where do you think virtues come from? Second example was, and I'm, and then, then second example was, uh, there was a complication, uh, and I was talking to Chief Resident about it. There was a complication on patient, and we're again talking about, you know, in medicine we're in a tough business. How many errors do you think are acceptable in medicine? I argue zero, zero. You don't want to go to a surgeon and be like, hey, I'm like 97 percent good. I'm like, you know, you don't. You're like, no, dude, you got to be on on game. You got to be. You gotta be perfect. But here's the problem, none of us are perfect. So I'm talking to Chief President because she was really distraught about this complication that she had a part in. Ultimately, I'm responsible. But I said, yeah, yeah, this, this is a problem. You've got to be perfect, but you're not perfect. And then what do you think she said? 
Dr. Lee, how do you handle it? So in those situations, I was able to answer a question based upon my faith. That you know what? Christ, there's justice and there's mercy. There's forgiveness. And somebody paid for that. Then it just will go away. And there's restoration, redemption. And other things like, yeah, you're right. And otherwise, we're all sitting around talking about virtues. But, you know, there's things called love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So that's kind of, I think, as part of our, if we're really knowing the right time and the right place as a mentor or teacher, how do we get them to ask the question? Like Jesus asked, you know, asked questions. How do we get them to that place where they really are struggling with it? And how can we point them to that? Um, I think you had a question. Uh, um, how do you sort of, <coughs> in, in thinking about bringing something like this and virtues at the center to the forefront of the conversation and not just have them be subtext, um, how do you do that you know, and hold that intention with some of the more overt things that happen that are sort of in opposition to like discussing intelligence and virtues and like the example that I'm sort of thinking about um, is that I heard a quote from a program, a survey program director who said like, I can't ask my residents to have integrity as surgeons um, and then tell them to lie on their duty hours sheets. Um, because otherwise they're just like getting really conflicting messages. And so I wonder like, to what extent do you think bringing these conversations um, to like the table and having them be real points of conversation changes the sort of more hidden messages that are um, really pervasive but that really contradict what we're talking about? Yeah, such a t difficult thing. We have this um, program that we developed at the VA. It's called Operating as Leaders. And basically, we do in a scenario just like what you said. So it's a simulation-based 30-minute thing. And we run them through a simulation, like a moral distress type of thing that you just talked about. Hey, listen, I know you were, your, your intern's lying. you got to tell them to stop lying. I mean, uh, putting down hours there, you got to tell them to just, just lie and put down... And then, but you're sitting in the hot seat under simulation, literally a simulation. And we go through it, and then we just stop. And then we debrief at the end. Because a lot of the times, um, you as a, as a learner don't have the power or the authority to change what the program director has said. But you as a learner do have the ability and the power and the authority to go talk to a person, hopefully like myself or somebody else, to talk through, like, this is what's happening to me, and I'm trying to resolve it. Because if you don't resolve it, I think there will be problems. So, and then maybe my part of my responsibility is to circle back with the attending and be like, hey, we, we, this can't happen. Part of it is that that kind of um, trust and relationships aren't happening, or maybe the learners don't feel like they can trust. But as an educator, like, what environment are we building to do that? Finally... This framework is so nice because I can just plop it on anybody's desk and be like, hey, do we agree with this? Do we agree with this or not? And I've yet to find somebody to be like, no, I totally disagree with this. Be like, okay, if we agree with this, then here, let's just talk about how this applies to this situation because we've got a problem. Um, and leaders, it does, if I didn't have a leader like Ray Escamado to support what we're doing, it, it'd be very difficult. And maybe I might have to make the personal decision to say, do I stay here at Duke? Or do I go find a job that allows me to, you know, make this happen? You know, these are hard conversations. They're not easy. Um, but 
for us to ignore them and just to kind of bury them <clears throat> is more damaging and not say anything. We've seen that in the news where people hide it, they bury it, and what, what's happening now? It's just like the emotional um, catharsis is happening. It's like, oh my gosh, my heartbreak is what? Why, why couldn't, why did this take 30 years to come out? Um, I think you had a question. Um, just hitting at what you're talking about. I was wanting to know if you were able to um, assess um, residents' level of compassion fatigue because I can see how this triangle could not work if their compassion fatigue level is um, is not where it should be. Because sometimes your morality can challenge, is challenged if your compassion fatigue level is high. Yeah, yeah, and compassion fatigue is something that, again, I think the nursing literature talks a lot about this, where you're so just exhausted, right, just because you care so much. So a lot of it is helping them kind of manage, hey, how can you get recharged? This is where faith comes in. You know, I can talk about, hey, even God wanted us to take a day to rest and recharge. So that allows me to use, um, use those resources that I can try to build in. Be like, hey, if you're working all the time because you care so much, there's something wrong with that. And it's okay, I'm telling you there's something wrong with that. You don't have to feel like you're doing anything less. Um, but those those conversations need to happen. Um, and then finally, Warren, uh, oh, Brett, no, sorry. Uh, the, yep, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm just curious. I, I might not have understood the, the study with the, the Q-sorts. The Q-sorts. But have you seen um, a difference or an evolution from first year to um, by the time they move through? Or have you seen significant differences in classes? Um, and also, is there is there something an ideal that you want them to reach, or that you you're looking for in your classes? Um, not an ideal because I don't. That's, yeah. that's part of the power. I'm like you guys as a group can kind of decide this. Like I, you know, I'm not here to tell you it has to be this. So that's why I really enjoy it. It's like they own it. But in terms of the data, how it's changed class to class, how they even if you take one person, what does it look like? Right. And or even if you take the fourth years and say, you guys are going into orthopedics, you guys are going into pathology, how does that even look within specialties? Because I argue there is probably a difference. Um, we're all those are all questions we're looking at. Okay. Um, but we haven't gotten to the point where we can really digest it. <laughs> Sorry, I think you've been waiting for a while. Yeah, I just had a quick clarifying question on the study. And maybe this is just my not understanding the data either, but these questions are posed as, say, does faith and spirituality have a place in medicine, or is it, does your faith and spirituality have a place in medicine? Yeah. Is it from the perspective of the individual, or is it in general? Uh, individual. Okay. It is from the individual. What do you believe are um, the most and least important virtues in the practice of medicine, or In your practice of medicine, or in the practice? Um, in the practice of medicine. Because some people may not practice medicine. Um, we've also done it with, um, yeah, some people may not practice medicine. So we thought a lot about that. We also looked at patients to see what they thought from that standpoint. Warren, I'll give you the last word on our last question. <laughs> Thanks. So I thought, I'm, I'm struck by the QSORT data that you showed and that 53% of 117 students who rated faith and spirituality as the minus five. Yeah, the least, least important. important. Yeah. 
so a couple of thoughts about that. One, one just a kind of comment for us is that uh, if uh, I think that's a it's a marker. Of those those were first year students. They you know had not gotten very far in medical formation, but they'd made a very clear decision that they were not going to ascribe faith and spirituality as most important. Maybe largely because maybe because they didn't themselves understand themselves as people of faith. But I think just one thought is that if 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 um, being a Christian disciple in medicine is only a matter of faith and spirituality and not also a matter of all those other attributes that you showed, then that's a big problem. And and if we narrate our, our lives as Christians in medicine as filtered through this concept of spirituality, like that what we do is spirituality, that's a it's a political loser also because it doesn't show actually how Christian faith is much more than having spirituality. Mm-hmm. It's having compassion and working for justice and having mm-hmm. integrity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all these other things. And so, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a challenge to us to um, narrate what it means to be a Christian in a way that isn't folded into this concept of spirituality that ultimately gets kind of lip service in yeah. healthcare, but doesn't really mean yeah. very much. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. That's a sort of comment. The, the methodological question, so the, the other, the, the, the attributes that you have looked a lot like Peterson and Seligman's Values in action, character strengths. Is, yes. it, is that the same list or is it? Uh, it's a uh, list, and then we added a few more that we found. Okay. So that was a list of 24. I think we have a 30 some okay. that we. Yeah, a couple that didn't recognize. Yes, yeah, 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 that we drew heavily on their work because yeah. they did all the work for us. Yeah, so just a, just a thought about how that might relate to that 53% number. That 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 list of character strengths, that, for those who don't know, came out this important 2004 book by two psychologists who were writing this book on character strengths and virtues. and tried to have a, a, a way that that, that was, um, th- that list is kind of methodologically a mess. Like it basically came along with uh, American and European psychologists and some others sitting in some conference rooms and saying, what do we most value about human life? And they came up with a list. And then they developed a psychometric scale to oh. measure it. And that's basically all. Like it, it, and they also did some literature reviews, but it wasn't like they did even, even high quality um, uh, observational work of what actually constitutes excellence. It really is a it's, a, it's a list of things that PhD psychologists thought were important. Yeah. And, and that it was and specifically framed to kind of meet the needs of a secular, mm-hmm. liberal, um, pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. And so all of those, all of those character strengths, I mean, they're, none of them are bad. Like, I hope I exhibit, you know, all of them in some way. But they're, they're really meant to serve the needs of Institutions like Duke Medical Center, or you know, kind of, and so when they got to these this virtue of transcendence, and then specifically this character strength of, of spirituality, it um, it's kind of a way of of situating spirituality as something that is private and separating it out from other mm-hmm. kinds of significant character strengths. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, the the methodology of the list actually mm-hmm. biases toward the kind of response the that private. you see, because because people have this kind of option of faith or spirituality, which is interested as private, as yes. opposed to all these other attributes that are interested as public. I see. And, that, and that's just fundamentally not a Christian that's way of thinking about virtues. And yeah. Like, we don't have a virtue of spirituality as Christians. We have excellences of living well in the world yes. that are all lived in some way before God in the spirit, and that's what we mean by spirituality. So, yes, so, yes. so, it's a, so the methodology kind of sets us up for those kinds of results because of the tools that we're using. Yeah. No, I had not um, realized that. I appreciate that um, background. And I, and I think it offers an opportunity for us who are Christian to um, articulate that, yeah. that important difference 
um, where the rest of the world is looking at that list and yeah. saying, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it's like, well, not really. <laughs> and, and maybe that's opportunity to really get, get, get that differences out. I want to thank everybody so much for um, your thoughts and uh, thanks.